Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Deathly quiet, a Palestinian doctor in Texas details the frustration and fear of not being able to reach his siblings in Gaza. And each time he hears about a new attack, he wonders if he will ever speak to them again. United in Grief, a community in the Northwest Territories, mourns the loss of six people killed in a plane crash. One resident says that in the face of such a tragedy, they have no option but to come together. Not a moment to waste. The Grand Chief of the Nishnabiaski Nation tells us what he demanded at the emergency meeting he held with federal officials and how best to help young people after a series of troubling, untimely deaths. A house divided. Tucker Carlson's appearance with Alberta's premier last night is making waves on Parliament Hill, where liberal ministers are calling on conservative leader Pierre Poiliev to condemn it. Call of the wild. Birds do it. Frogs do it. Even whales deep in the seas do it. But there's another mating animal that sings, and it's perhaps one you wouldn't expect. Stay tuned to hear that tune. And sheer nonsense. The owners of two restaurants in India are fighting in court over which of them invented butter chicken. A legal expert describes the Bollywood-style courtroom drama and what he loves about the world-famous dish. As it happens, the Thursday edition, Radio That Warns, he does get a little foul-mouthed. Today's news from the Gazan city of Khan Yunus is disturbing for anyone, but for people with loved ones there, it's unthinkable. Over the past 24 hours, Israeli forces have intensified their aerial bombardment and ground attacks on the city and issued new evacuation orders to many of its occupants. The UN says fighting has encircled two of the city's hospitals, leaving thousands of staff, patients and displaced people trapped inside. And its Palestinian refugee agency is reporting mass casualties at a facility housing hundreds of refugees, which it says was clearly marked as having civilians inside. Osaid Alser is a doctor who grew up in Gaza City. His brother is currently in the southern city of Rafah, and his Palestinian-Canadian sister, Dima Alser, is in Khan Yunus with her children. We reached Dr. Alser in Lubbock, Texas. Doctor, when is the last time you were able to speak with your sister? Um, I the last time I was able to talk to her was two weeks ago. Um, my brother somehow, who who lives in Egypt right now, mm-hmm. somehow was able to talk to her last night, which is amazing. Um, uh, the only thing she told him is that uh, they're okay. They had to move from their neighborhood in Khan Yunis, and the uh, bombing was intensified uh, in their area. So um, they're definitely in danger right now. Um, and then, so yeah, it was a very brief, like a few seconds, uh, kind of call, and uh, the the line dropped. How are you, I guess, staying sane or keeping it together? Uh, you know, as you try to call and connect and find out how they're doing. 
it's definitely extremely hard and uh, what bothers me the most is like when you hear on the news that this neighborhood has been bombed and then you call your family and like nobody kind of uh, picks up yeah. and you know it's just like are they alive like did i lose one of my family members so that feeling is extremely hard yeah you also have a brother in rafa what have you heard from him um the last time i was able to talk to him was two days ago um he is okay uh, i would say relatively okay compared mm-hmm. to others he lives in a tent he's a he's a actually a university professor and he was actually in switzerland and decided to go back to gaza literally a month prior uh, to the war when the war started um he himself actually he lost his father-in-law he was killed he was a, a dentist who was uh, sniped by a sniper when he was trying to seek medical care uh, in in gaza city you mentioned your brother is in cairo another of your brothers uh, as well as your mother did manage to get out and, and get to egypt why did this brother and sister decide to to stay behind yeah so i mean the you know those are the married kind of like siblings mm-hmm. um so for my sister um she decided to stay because you know like this kind of extended yeah. family living together and they live in the south which kind of like per the IDF initially they said it's a, a safe area everybody should move to the south but now we're seeing the south being invaded a lot of people being killed so it's no longer safe um, and therefore they decided a month ago to leave and you know like she applied or I applied for her on her behalf to leave through the Canadian mm-hmm. government and because we can talk more about Canadian, this yeah exactly she's she's the only one who has dual citizenship um my mom and the brothers the kind of single brother they decided to leave because my mom has a kind of medical condition she cannot like she has bad osteoarthritis Mm -hmm. she needs a replacement and stuff and so we actually pushed her we told her mom you need medical care you absolutely need to leave she absolutely didn't want she was adamant she didn't want to leave but we forced her to leave mm-hmm. so there is a a huge strong kind of sense of uh belonging and yeah. connection to the to the land and therefore most people don't want to leave how has the canadian government with regards to your sister responded to the efforts to to get her out what, what have you heard from them Unfortunately, it's very disappointing, I would say. Um, you know, we started the process, I must say it was late, but we started the process a month ago. And they kind of, because they couldn't reach out to her, so I was like the liaison. They questioned everything. They asked so many documents they wanted. But finally, like, it took me like a week or so to get all the documents they wanted. And we sent it, and they said, yes, sure, now we have a complete application. And since then... I keep calling them, especially when there's bombing in their neighborhood. And they just say, well, we submit an application. Now it's on the Israeli and the Egyptian side to approve. And and so I just feel like there's no enough pressure mm-hmm. to basically escalate that. The response was just disappointing. And you just say, oh, like almost like stop calling us, um, which like, I mean, to me, it didn't make sense because, mm-hmm. like, somebody who's really worried about somebody, you know, like, I'm uh, really worried that my sister might be killed at any point. 
you know, I my duty is to absolutely call them even every single minute yeah. because I'm really worried about her. But, I, you know, at this point, like, there's no meaningful response. You were on this program in 2021 after right. uh, a doctor who was a mentor to you, a mentor to many other young doctors, was killed in an Israeli airstrike at that time. You obviously still have connections to the medical community in Gaza, and you've lost other friends. Of course. And it, I mean, I, I'm glad I'm talking to you guys, but it's also unfortunate that we have to talk about the same thing where, you know, like doctors and healthcare workers are being killed and targeted. I mean, back in 2021, uh, Dr. Ayman Abulov, who was one of my professors at medical school, was killed. But like right now in this current like Israeli aggression on Gaza, the we we we've been working through an organization that we established, me and my brother, it's called Healthcare Worker Watch, and we've been working on documenting attacks on healthcare. And so far, as of yesterday, we have four hundred and seven healthcare workers that have been killed. And of course the targeting of the hospitals, I mean right now there's mainly one or two hospitals are functioning or kind of partially functioning, which is Nasser Hospital in, in Khan Yunus. You have a cousin who's a surgeon at Nasser, is that right? Exactly. So my cousin Khalid Asir, who's a one of only two surgeons who decided to stay, um, he is from Khan Yunus, from that city. His family lives nearby. So he decided to just stay in that hospital along with another surgeon. So it's definitely very hard, uh, especially like just having two surgeons in a hospital that literally covers like at least 1.5 million who are displaced from North Gaza and moved to South of Gaza. Doctor, thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Osaid Alser is a Palestinian doctor whose Palestinian-Canadian sister is in Khan Yunus. We reached him in Lubbock, Texas. We reached out to Global Affairs for an update on the family's application, but we did not hear back before airtime. Alvin Fiddler worries that if help doesn't come fast, the people in his community will have to attend more funerals. He's the Grand Chief of the Nishnabi Aski Nation, which represents 49 First Nation communities within northern Ontario. Yesterday, it held an emergency meeting in Ottawa with Indigenous leaders and federal ministers. The Grand Chief has described an increasing trend of unexplained deaths, suicides, and suicide attempts in Nishnabi Aski Nation territory, which he says signals a severe mental health crisis. We reached Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler in Ottawa. Grand Chief Fiddler, did that meeting yield the kind of immediate help and immediate commitments you were hoping for? Yeah, I think the uh, the ministers that were there, the federal ministers, did express, first of all, just uh, that they recognized the urgency of the situation that we are in and that there is a, a real need for some immediate relief mm-hmm. to support uh, the communities that are experiencing uh, these uh, tragic losses. And, uh, you know, as I sit here this afternoon, just, I just got another call from one of our communities uh, that another young girl, 14 years old, uh, took her 
your life this morning. I'm so sorry for your loss, that family's loss, that community's loss. Thank you. What would help in the short term right now? Would it be sending a whole group of counselors or, you know, obviously you're there, you're speaking to people there. We've had these conversations before. So what would help tomorrow? Yeah, I think the chiefs that were here uh, yesterday uh, did express uh, that there is um, a human cost for sure, but there's also a financial cost that they have to bear a lot of times on their own, and uh, all those resources are depleting and that they need some immediate relief uh, in terms of properly trained uh, mental health counselors to uh, be in the community, that they there needs to be uh, a professional piece as well. Uh, you know, right now there is no, for example, very little uh, or no access at all to child psychologists or child, uh, child uh, psychiatrists, and that they, you know, all those professional services need to, you know, that they need to be mobilized and that they need to be in the communities. Why hasn't that happened yet, do you think? Because we, you were on our program back in 2017, and we spoke then. It wasn't me, of course, but you, you spoke yeah. then about... It was almost to that day, I think, 2017, like yesterday. So, so seven years later, and at that time, uh, yeah. two 12-year-old girls had died by, mm-hmm. by suicide. There were fears, just as there are, there are now. So why is that help still not available to these young people? Well, I think, yeah, and we talked about this yesterday, that there's been some progress that has been made since 2017, but not nearly as fast as uh, we, as our communities are, are telling us that they want to see those uh, changes happening. And, you know, I think the, the government, uh, federal, both federal and Ontario, they, they commit to uh, resources to have some programming and services made available to our communities. But a lot of times uh, there is no capital attached to these uh, services. So as a result, there is no actual place in the communities where these they can be housed, but also to create safe spaces in all our communities. Mm-hmm. We talked about that yesterday, that the next phase of Choose Life, for example, is uh, life-saving. Yeah, I was going to ask you changing, about that. Uh, yeah. you know, that, that we started uh, in 2017. Right now, it does not have capital. There's no safe spaces at all in our communities. So we talked about, you know, building Choose Life community hubs in, in all mm-hmm. our communities where there would be uh, beds for boys and beds for, you know, girls and all the youth. Yeah. So that if they're feeling unsafe at home or if they're experiencing violence, uh, that they can go to this hub and that somebody will answer the door and somebody will look after them for that night. To remind our listeners, the Choose Life program is a program that NAN has been working with the federal government on since, as you mentioned, 2017. And it was meant to fast track funding proposals for youth and child mental health services and, and came with about $560 million in funding over the last several years. Has that program helped? Well, it is helping. Mm-hmm. You know, I think without programs like Choose Life, you know, my fear is that we would have lost more more of our children. I mean, there's there's a lot of incredible work that is being done in our yeah. communities. Uh, and we acknowledged that yesterday. You know, we had uh, one of our chiefs uh, from Long Lake 58 achieved it. Uh, Julie Desmolin talked about, and, and we've seen her work um, in the community where she is doing everything and anything that she can mm-hmm. to support uh, the children and youth in that community. And there's other examples like that across uh, across NAN, but they need help. Uh, they need to be given uh, the funding on a sustainable basis so that they can do this work you know, all year round. 
you know, again, just going back to your question about choose life uh, mm-hmm. that the next phase, and we did ask for this commitment yesterday, needs to inc- include capital. And so I'll be writing a letter uh, next week to the Minister of Finance as she prepares her budget for this year, this upcoming year, that more investments need to be made in these areas so that you know, initiatives like Choose Life can actually fully implement their, their mandate if they have a place, if they have an actual building to deliver their programming, but also to provide those safe spaces for all the youth in our communities. For a young person who's listening right now, what would you want them to hear? Uh, but we love our kids. You know, I, and I tell my own kids uh, this every day that we want you to live and we want you to be healthy and happy and you deserve all those opportunities that any other child is getting, you know, whether you're up in uh, Webber or Fort Albany or if you're living in Thunder Bay or Toronto, every child deserves to have those opportunities to succeed in life, you know, to have clean water, to live in a good home, to live with supportive parents in a good, you know, just in a safe community and and that there's a future for them and that we all need to work together to for them to um, realize their their own dreams and their, their own aspirations that that we know they have grand chief fiddler thank you very much for your time thank you that was Nishnabi ASCII Nation Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler in Ottawa. We reached out to provincial ministers who were invited to the meeting to find out why they didn't attend, but we didn't hear back before going to air. A Canadian press article cited scheduling conflicts. And if you or someone you know is struggling, you can get help right now by calling or texting Canada's Suicide Crisis Helpline at 988. Corey Lawson has spent years listening very closely and doing that listening in the usual places like outside old mines in British Columbia. Not just because she's some kind of eavesdropper, or at least that's not the only reason, but because she's a kind of sleuth. And recently she made a breakthrough discovery after hearing this sound. Here's Corey Lawson explaining that noise on CBC Kelowna. What you heard was actually a series of ultrasonic signals, so signals that we wouldn't have otherwise heard. These are sounds being produced by silver-haired bats um, in a frequency range that's above what our human ears can hear, but it was expanded um, or slowed down tenfold so that we could hear it. Um, It's about 15 seconds worth or so, a little bit less than that, I guess, of what we could hear but that was about 1.5 seconds of what the bat actually produced. Oh, wow. No kidding. Okay, now let's talk about the study. What was the central question you set out to answer with this study? Well, it was really um, solving a mystery, actually, because we started recording these really fun-looking sounds that were not echolocation. We could tell that because they're produced um, very quickly in very repetitive phrases. And so there really you know, couldn't be echolocation because there wasn't enough 
time between the pulses to listen for an echo. So we thought, hmm, there's something really fun about these and who's producing them and what do they mean? And we think they're songs because the species that we are capturing or the individuals of the silver-haired bats were actually uh, mating. We did have signs of mating. And, and so that gave us a little bit more uh, confidence to say that these are probably being song, songs being um, produced to attract mates. Wow. And, and so do, are there different kinds of songs? Are there quote-unquote tunes? And then what do you think the other bats think of the song? Well, these tunes, if you will, are pretty standard, which is lovely um, because it does give us a way to recognize them and to recognize that species in particular, the silver-haired. They do have some variations, and I'm sure those mean something. But at this point, we're just barely understanding what these things are. You know, there's a lot more research to happen. And we need to know, for example, is the males that are producing these or, or do the females produce them as well? And, and is this a way to say hey, I'm out and about. Is anyone out here? You know, in the middle of winter, it's pretty cold and quiet and we get a single bat being recorded and and maybe they're out calling and hopefully there's another bat out there that they can mate with. Or is it it a tune that's basically saying, hey, um, this is my area, stay away. Bat researcher Corey Lawson speaking with CBC Kelowna host Chris Walker. If there's one Indian dish that everyone knows, it has to be butter chicken. It's on menus in a a truly astonishing number of restaurants, including many where it probably really shouldn't be. You can even find it in pies, on pizza, and here in Canada, on poutine. But who invented butter chicken? Don't worry, I'm not actually asking you. That is a question that a court in India is being asked to answer. Two restaurant chains are in a legal battle over who first came up with it. Amit Dutta is an intellectual property lawyer watching the case. We reached him in Delhi, India. Amit, are you a fan of butter chicken? Oh, terrible. Horrible fan. <laughs> <laughs> it can be dangerous, can't it? Yeah. What do you love about it? Well, it should come as no surprise, the butter really, <laughs> which makes things much better yeah. in life as I've learned to my detriment. <laughs> Agreed on that point. Have you had it in North America? I've had it in Canada, in yeah. Toronto, oh, and nice. I've had it in North America in at least four different cities. Your review? Uh, I've had it in the UK. Your, yeah. Canada was better. America was awful. <laughs> the UK was better. <laughs> okay, noted. But have you, as you've enjoyed and indulged in butter chicken uh, over the years. Have you ever wondered, I mean, who invented it? Is that a question that that was always in your mind? Well, you know, uh, it's a lot of popular folklore or legend in India, uh, as you say, urban legends that a gentleman, you know, nobody kind of connected the name, but a gentleman who set up a restaurant called Moti Mahal was said to have invented butter chicken Mm -hmm. pretty much on the fly because he had some tandoori chicken or roasted chicken Mm -hmm. left over and he had guests and then he had to make do. So he fashioned a dish uh, on the double using butter, copious amounts of butter, I'm told, Mm -hmm. and uh, tomato sauce and tomato paste with spices. Mm -hmm. And so butter chicken was born. So that's the legend, the urban legend. Does it stand up in court? That's the question. The family behind the Moti Mahal chain 
brought forward this lawsuit. So obviously there's that urban legend, that lore you've talked about, but that alone, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but that alone may not stand up in court or hold up in court. So what are they saying to back up their claims that it was invented by their, their ancestor? Well, they've produced sorts of documentary evidence in terms of, you know, the fact that there was a restaurant predating partition in what is now Pakistan. They migrated to India after partition from Peshawar to uh, Delhi. And they set up a small restaurant and they had a partnership. And Kundanlal um, Gujral, the founder of Moti Mahal, is said to have created this in the restaurant. They supported that with partnership deeds and news articles and awards uh, and recognitions given to him by the government and industry. So what they're counting on is, with the passage of time, really their reputation as the creators or the claim as creators has solidified. What is the other company, the rival restaurant, Darya Gansi? Well, the other company stand is, is very simple. We were partners together. My grandfather and his grandfather were partners. And they created it. And actually, my grandfather created it. So there's this little sub-layer of tussle as to who is the chef and who is the front desk guy. And both sides claim that their respective grandfathers were the chefs. And there's a second dish uh, in dispute here. It's a lentil dish, dal makani. How would you describe it? Well, dal makhani is a lentil dish with, again, copious amounts of butter. <laughs> That's the key. Uh, and cream. And if that weren't enough, more copious amounts of cream, which is slow-cooked. It's 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 even got a more legendary status than butter chicken because of its oh. acceptance across people who eat, you know, vegetarian food mm. and non-vegetarian food as well. Is it beyond, you know, having this legal recognition, having it in writing at the end of it. Is it beyond that for, for these businesses and families? Will it make any financial difference? I think this fight has higher stakes than just being known as the creator of the butter chicken because this is definitely a flagship dish. It draws people. There's history. There's legend. So it's all the stuff of a good Bollywood film. <laughs> Do you think there'll be a clear-cut decision at the end of it? Well, certainly the court is going to be hard-pressed to assess this. This is just a couple of shades, I guess, removed from he said and he said, Mm -hmm. which is the worst kind of case for a judge to deal with. You're interested in this case. You're watching it closely. What about uh, across India? How how are other people feeling? Do they care? Are they just going about their business? It it certainly is not a televised sort of helicopter shot of uh, (laughs) a highway chase where everybody is glued to the screens. Uh, It's not a nail biter or a cliffhanger. But from that perspective, the people are definitely interested, given the popular sort of standing of the restaurant and Mm -hmm. and the dish. And it's not only a national dish, right? It's Mm -hmm. an internationally known dish spread across the world, not limited to the diaspora as well. And so I'm waiting for somebody in Pakistan to stand up and say that we created the dish first. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. But to be clear, based on what you just said there, uh, it it leads me to the next question. People listening around the world might hear this and be concerned that their access to their beloved butter chicken might be limited uh, at the end of this case. Is that at risk here? 
Well, I can assure you, if that were the case, I'd be the most worried person. But that <laughs> certainly is not going to be the case because this is not a case in terms of who controls or can monopolize a recipe. Mm. But this case is simply unpacked. This case is about who will be known as the creator of the dish. Butter chicken is going to be as popular. Yeah. It's not going to stop because of this case. You said earlier what makes a great butter chicken. What makes a bad butter chicken? No butter. <laughs> but is that what restaurants are doing? What are they doing instead of butter, do you think, at the places you didn't like it? Well, I think they overdo the tomato sauce, they underdo the spices, mm. or they're just terrible cooks. <laughs> Amit, a pleasure speaking <laughs> with you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Amit Datta is an intellectual property lawyer. He's in Delhi. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. The people of Fort Smith are grieving, but they're grieving together. Six people were killed and one seriously injured after a plane crashed in the Northwest Territories on Tuesday, shortly after takeoff. It was headed for a Rio Tinto diamond mine, about 300 kilometers northeast of Yellowknife. Two pilots and four passengers died. Last night, people gathered at a church in Fort Smith for a vigil. Here's part of what they heard. All the words in the world aren't going to bring these young people back that we've lost. Tragedy is a bad, bad thing in this community. It's going on for a long time now. We're losing so many people in the last while. For, for the families, it's hard. It's hard to take. We, we talk about sorrow. We talk about healing. We as a community, as you can see, we care for each other in this town. That was Alan Heron, president of the Fort Smith Métis Council, speaking at a vigil held in Fort Smith last night. Susan Inge organized that vigil. We reached her in Fort Smith. Susan, we heard one of the moments there, and that in itself was, was moving, but I wonder for you, what are the moments that will stay with you from the vigil? I think the unbelievable image and uh, what I describe as a sea of candle lights just flickering throughout the, our cathedral as everyone lit up their own candle. And we had over 200 people um, standing room only in our cathedral. Mm. And that those sea of lights just lit up that room uniting all of us. We all shared the one thing in common we were there for, and that is to come together. As uh, the Métis president said, you know, it's a very sad moment in the history of our town. We are uh, close with one another. Uh, it's a fairly small town mm -hmm. of less, well, less than 3,000. Yeah. So to lose six people 
just in this case, is certainly significant. And he, he said there that this is not the first tragedy that you've dealt with in this small community. So in that sea of candlelight, how were people supporting each other? People were grief-stricken, um, whether they were directly impacted or not. Uh, we felt each other's pain. We felt the sorrow. And, and uh, there was a lot of people who were fighting back the tears last night. Some were, you know, just um, sitting amongst, uh, you know, their neighbors. And they, uh, you know, people were just sort of supporting each other verbally or hugging one another at the end of the, uh, of the event. You know, people stuck around and were just comforting one another. But I think the one that really hit me was how all of our firefighters gathered together in uniform last night and were standing there rallying around uh, their airline pilots who were there and were going down row by row, lighting everybody's candle. But the, the pilots themselves look so terribly sad and they were, you know, we were there to help them as, as well as, you know, our rangers. Our rangers went out to the site itself and they uh, uh, wanted to come back with better news. You know, there was one survivor. I wanted to ask you about that survivor, Kurt McDonald. He was taken to a hospital in Yellowknife. Is there any sense, do you have any information on how he's doing now? I don't know. What I'm finding out is that people are grieving in private at the moment. They are just, it's too much for them to bear to go out and about. I don't know if yeah. there were immediate family members last night in the cathedral, but uh, people are just sort of holding close to home and uh, helping each other through things day at a time, hour by hour. It's all understandable. It is still new. It's a deep and a large loss, as we've said. Are people starting to mm -hmm. ask questions, though, about what might have happened? Or is it too soon for people to do that? I think... Um, I think we're just trying to grapple with, with the fact that this happened at this point. Um, those questions uh, have not publicly been asked. Um, the airline uh, has not responded to media uh, requests for interviews. I think, um, you know, we'll let the process take place and the coroner um, will be here. The Transportation Safety Board uh, people will be coming in to conduct their in, their inquiry or their investigation, do their, uh, you know, investigation at site to find out what happened. And, uh, you know, so that's where that stands right now. From where you sit, Susan, do you feel there's enough support, formal and informal support, to help people get through this? Because, you know, our listeners may also remember uh, about the evacuations that had to happen this summer as well. Yeah, every, you know, we bounced back incredibly well. I, you know, I, I guess that's a testimony to the human spirit is that when you face tragedies, you know, you have to put one foot in front of the other and uh, for survival purposes, get through whatever's facing you, whatever hurdles you've got to overcome. And I've had friends who have lost, had suffered tremendous losses and uh, over the evacuation. But People are resilient, you know, and I think what really helps, at least in my view, is that um, when someone is down, you help them get up. And my role here 
is uh, uh, is to is be part of that process to be a help in whatever way I can. And because I'm on the parish council and I work with the Catholic uh, Church Cathedral here, that was one way to bring people together. But there there are you know dozens of other groups that are doing their um, bit to help people through this. And um, it's just a proof that uh, the character of Fort Smith and the population here is is pretty tough. You know, they're they're uh, standing, you know, to help their neighbor, and um, you know, sharing food, providing cooking meals. Um, there's a mental health team here, so you know, everybody's doing different things. You know, Susan, thank you for your time. Oh, you are most welcome. Take care. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Susan Inge organized a vigil that was held last night in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. That's where we reached her. They were only on stage together for 16 minutes, but the fallout from Tucker Carlson's sit-down with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith will last a lot longer than that. The Premier tried to focus her conversation with the U.S. commentator on energy policy and on Canada's environment minister, at one point telling Mr. Carlson, quote, I wish you would put Stephen Guilbeault in your crosshairs, unquote. Well, today, Minister Guilbeault responded to that wish, along with feder- fellow Liberal Cabinet Ministers Randy Boissonneau, Pablo Rodriguez, and Pascal Saint-Ange, who called on Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre to condemn last night's event. This goes beyond me and the fact that I was targeted last night at, at this event. This increases political violence against Everyone who runs for office in this country, whether they're doing it at the municipal level, at the provincial level, or at the federal level. As my friend and colleague Randy said, like, we can have differences of opinion. We can bang our fist on, on the table when, when, when we meet. We can have strong disagreement. But, but, but to, to, to incite violence against people who disagree with you, that's not how things should be done in can Canada. Can you clarify what is the violence? What is the violence? I think the minister also said this in French. What is the violence that they are bringing to Canada? What is the political violence that you're talking about? Just to be very clear. Well, to put to, to put a, a target on on someone's back, for example, to name what is well, the evil, to put what someone is the in evil crosshairs. That you say they're bringing here. I mean, uh, spewing hate speech about LGBTQ people, trying to bring the kind of division that they have in the United States, north of the border. Um, MAGA-style conservatism has no place in Canada, and it's trying to reach into through our borders. And as Minister Rodriguez has said, conservative premiers, instead of doing their jobs, are trying to invite this wave of populism. And I can tell you, it's making newcomers nervous and fearful. People in the LGBTQ2 community do not feel safe. We have people who want to run for office that take a look at what happened last night in Edmonton and say, why bother? And that is not good for the political commons. It's not good for Canadian democracy. You brought up, you brought up Pierre Polyev name in your comments. I mean, is this going to be your effect, your strategy effectively well, going forward? Is tying Pierre to, to Trump? He wants to be prime minister of this country. These, what happened last night is not acceptable. Is he going to condemn that? If he wants to run for prime minister, he should have the courage to condemn those. It's not acceptable. So is this going to be your strategy? Attendance, or I, I mean, 
what do you make of the fact that there is an audience for it and for for their perspective? Well, as, as I said in French, the extreme right po po politics when, don't ask the question if it's coming to Canada. It's already here. Are you not contributing to the divide by exactly. coming out here and comparing Polyev to this and making this about him? Are you not contributing to the divide by doing that? If your government not, has been accused... We're not, we're not comparing Polyev to him. I think what... what You're my, not? Have you looked at your own advertising from Mr. 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 What Mr. Rodriguez just said is he said, I, 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 I'm asking Pierre Polyev, the leader of the opposition, yeah. to condemn those hateful and violent Absolutely. statement by, by, by Tucker Carlson. Liberal cabinet ministers Stephen Guilbeault, Randy Boissonneau, and Pablo Rodriguez speaking to and being challenged by reporters in Ottawa today about Tucker Carlson's appearance in Calgary last night. So far, Benito the giraffe has lived a lonely life, but this week he got a fresh start. The four-year-old giraffe had been living in a public park in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, on the border with the U.S., but animal rights activists say the city-run park wasn't able to properly take care of the giraffe. So finally, Benito was transported about 2,000 kilometers to a conservation park in central Mexico. Laura Sanchez started the petition to move Benito. We reached her in Puebla, Mexico. Laura, are you looking at Benito right now? We are on our way. We literally just got here. It's about an hour from where we were staying in the city. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a safari that we have to go through. So it is uh, like a car, you know, yeah. route that we have to take all the way down. Benito's still in quarantine, um, but apparently they might let him out today. So we're going to try and reach the director of the park, uh, mm -hmm. whom we met in Juarez, Mexico, when they went to pick up Benito. Yeah. And... Um, and hope that we get to see him, which you, I'm pretty sure we will. Are you, I mean, has the anticipation been building? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, everybody's been asking how he's doing and how the place is. You know, people are worried that he would end up in the same situation as, as Juarez. And no, it is, it's absolutely gorgeous up here. Uh, it's a very well-kept park with, uh, you know, certified personnel and the weather is absolutely gorgeous. So it's it's night and day. Absolutely. So already you're feeling better about this decision and yes. this move for him. Oh, 100%. Yeah, we could not be happier. Let's go back a bit and, and tell our listeners how he was transported, because that was not an mm -hmm. easy task. <laughs> it was not. Yeah, absolutely. It was not. Um, so basically, they picked him up in a specialized container that African Safari paid for themselves. Um, so it was dictated by Profepa, which is the legal entity, the attorney general, basically, for the environment and, and animals in Mexico, for Benito to come here. Uh, reason being that, you know, there's reproductive um, and educational initiatives over here. So they've done this you know, plenty of times before, not just nationally, but internationally. And uh, they have a specialized container. They had closed circuit cameras, um, you know, inside the container. It had hydraulics if it needed to, you know, elevate or, or not for, you know, bridges mm -hmm. and things like that. So it was definitely uh, a big task, but nothing that was new to African Safari. So right. they're very specialized in that. So it was it was an easy trans transition. They expected about 50 hours and it ended up being uh, a little less than 30. 
Okay. There, as you know, though, uh, he was beloved by people in Juarez. So as that container left, people lined up to say goodbye. What were they saying and doing? Yeah, uh, they were chanting, obviously, you know, we love you, Benito, and uh, happy trails, Benito, and uh, we did it was a major part of it. There were a lot of animal advocates, advocates, you know, um, just cheering on something we thought was never going to happen. We've been fighting for this for almost nine months. And finally, I think putting enough pressure and getting the voice out and everybody cooperating and, and uniting their voices for, for these animals, I think, made a big difference. You live in Texas, uh, you know, and even Correct. if you love animals, why did you want to take this on? <laughs> yeah, I live on the border um, with Juarez, Mexico. I grew up in Juarez um, till my late 20s. So most of my life has been spent in, in Juarez. And I'm uh, I'm an animal advocate individual. You know, I, I don't belong to any big groups or anything. I just help whoever needs help. And I've been helping for the last 15, 16 years across the border. I found out of, about Benito through uh, a lot of the animal advocates and being that I speak English and, you know, I, I could help on the U.S. side, maybe share the voice and educate others about Benito's situation. And thankfully, we've been getting support just worldwide. Uh, and it's been amazing. It's been a really um, satisfying thing for, for us animal yeah. advocates to know that people care enough about these animals to, to share their voices on social media, um, interviews, you know, anything that they could do, um, we all did. You described it a little bit at the outside of our conversation, but, but what were the most serious concerns you had with where Benito was? Yeah, um, obviously we, we're used to uh, rescuing, you know, smaller creatures like dogs and cats, never a giraffe. So this was definitely a big challenge for, for all of us, but we took it on upon ourselves to educate ourselves, you know, about the species and uh, Benito's a species that's going extinct. Um, you know, giraffes usually live in herds. Uh, they do not live in extreme climates, which we have in Juarez, Mexico. So from the get-go, you know, it really didn't take an expert to know that Benito did not have the proper, you know, care or installations or or anything. So we all knew that we needed, we had a, a big task in our hands, but but we did it. We should mention that officials uh, at the park where Benito was originally uh, told the Associated Press that they, you know, they, they acknowledged they they couldn't provide more trees, but they mm -hmm. reject the overall criticism. Uh, but but you also mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, he needs company and he's going to have that. So what have you heard about yeah. how Benito is feeling about his new stud status <laughs> in yeah. this new group? Yeah, yeah, he's been doing great in his enclosure. You know, they've kept him in quarantine just for him to get used to the noises and the smells and and uh, he's been doing great, you know, obviously, um, I think smelling the other giraffes, he's very curious about it. So, yeah, thankfully, he's going to be a part of another seven giraffes, a family of other seven giraffes, three of them who are, uh, you know, older females in the reproductive stage. So that's the whole purpose, right, to keep the species going. And I think this is going to be a, a great, great place for him. Laura, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Laura Sanchez started the petition to move Benito the giraffe. We reached her in Puebla, Mexico.
When we last heard from Lauren Shea, she was in Spain with her team preparing to do some rowing. And when I say some rowing, I mean the most rowing. They were about to set out on a journey across the Atlantic to Antigua, part of an annual event called the World's Toughest Row. That was in December. Now her team, which is called Salty Science, has completed the trek. Salty Science is made up entirely of women and all marine scientists. Ms. Shea is a master's student at the UBC Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries, and she spoke to the CBC from Antigua this week. We did not set out to be very competitive. We wanted to perform as well as we could in the race, but our main priorities were to get across safely, to have a crossing that we were proud of, to finish as friends, and then lastly, to row as fast as we could. And if that meant that we performed well in the race, that's amazing. Um, if it meant that you know we came at the end of the race, that's also fine, as long as we achieve those other objectives. Um, and it just so happened that by doing those three things, we actually ended up um, winning the women's class for the race, which was really awesome. We we didn't really want to acknowledge that we were doing so well for most of the trip. Um, and it wasn't until the the last week, really, that we kind of started to set in that we might actually might actually be winning and um we had one team called um, There She Rose that we, um, it was super fun. We were really close to each other for most of the race. At one point, um, we could see their navigation lights at night because they were only a mile away. They um, popped up on our screen a lot from their AIS signal that they were sending off. So it was really awesome to have updates of where they were every day. And I think it made both of our teams push ourselves um, really hard. And um, it was really awesome to to see them come in the other day. Are you rowing 24 hours a day or at least some of you? Yeah. So the we were never stopping from the point that we left La Gomera until we got to Antigua. The boat was constantly being rowed for the 38 and a half days straight. Um, we're in a watch rotation. So at any given time, there's two people that are rowing and there's two people that are resting or eating or just not rowing. Um, and we did a hybrid schedule. So during the day, we had two hours of rowing and two hours off. And then at night, we would do three hours of rowing and three hours off. The most amount of sleep that we probably got for the whole crossing was about two and a half hours. If you were really efficient with getting off the oars, getting yourself changed into dry clothes and um, and make yourself fall asleep really quickly, you could um, <laughs> you could you could maybe get two and a half hours. That was UBC marine biologist Lauren Shea talking to the CBC's Renee Lucas. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.